is the Next Trip Podcast with Aviation Insiders Doug and Drew. Together, with more than 40 years of industry experience, they are creating a network for other app geeks and travel enthusiasts to obsess about all things aviation. All thoughts and opinions are their own. Good day and welcome to Boarding Pass 194, operating on August 16th, 2023. This is Drew, an airline ops manager, and I'm here with my buddy Doug, an airline pilot. We're here to discuss aviation topics from an industry insider's perspective. Sorry for the delay on this every on this episode, everyone. We promised you an exciting first-time guest on the show, and we will not disappoint. Yes, today we welcome Oscar Munoz, the former chairman and CEO of United Airlines. We both just finished reading Oscar's new book. It's called Turnaround Time, and we highly recommend it to our listeners. It's available wherever books are sold. Oscar provides a fascinating inside look at how he turned United Airlines around and charted it on the path to again become the biggest airline of the world. Oscar, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Oscar, we've both met you, and I know you meet millions of people, and you were a, you were a CEO that really got around and met the employees. I met you at our station operations center, and Doug, you've met Oscar. I did, yeah. We're, we're, I've got a story about that. We're going to talk about it here in a few minutes. Don't worry, Oscar. It's a good story. My daughter told me not to tell it, but we'll talk about it here in a second. <laughs> Yeah, it's rare to meet a company CEO, and I've worked for a bunch of companies, and I've met you a couple times. I've met Scott Kirby a couple times, so it's great to actually know the person that's leading the company, so that's awesome. But back to you, do you miss the grind of working as a CEO, or are you are you in retirement bliss? <laughs> well, I, so, a couple things there. I, I am uh, I'm failing the concept of retirement, as most people know it, and I'm failing miserably. There's just so much energy. There's, there's a great Teddy Roosevelt quote that it's a longer quote, but basically people that do the things that kind of I do or have done, it's hard to move away from that. So his quote is, I would rather wear out than rust out. Hmm. And uh, mm. that's just always, okay. it's always in the back of my head because it's like, it's hard to say it still. So yeah, I am, I am in, in bliss because I am, I am busy. I am happy and I'm healthy uh, and all those things matter. And I'm getting to do some wonderful things. Do your question, do I miss the daily grind? The answer mm-hmm. is no. You know, when you've done it, uh, <laughs> you know, because I, I tell you, the daily grind almost doesn't leave you because, mm-hmm. you, you know, I am who I am and I've done what I've done. So there is an avenue or a forum where anything of contemporary in particular with regards to airlines doesn't raise up. Mm-hmm. I can be on vacation and someone has a delayed flight and, hey, they come to me. So, you know, it's never <laughs> going to leave you. It's, it's, That's it's like not us. only part of your deal. Yeah, but, but it's wonderful because, you know, you are able to help people. I still obviously have a ton of connections and the company has been awesome to me. And uh, again, the concept of, of meeting folks, it was a thing that was just really important to me in our industry. And I, I'm glad Scott has taken on that as well because it just makes that, you know, it's such a, as you guys know, it's a, such a widely what we call distributed work of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't, you know, agree. It's like the, the tech ops floors, you know, you have a few more people there, you know, on the night shifts, but you know, pilot, I mean, it's like there's either two of you or four of you are depending on where you're going. So there's never any large sort of factory floor where you can go and, and address people and give speeches. <laughs> you have to catch people where they work. And I think uh, importantly, making the effort and actually listening to people while you're in those places uh, made a big difference, certainly, in the way uh, that we were able to turn United around. In your schedule, your crazy busy schedule, we've been working with your team for the last month trying to get you on. Are, are you able to travel for fun and, and just let everything mm-hmm. go, enjoy the retirement, pick a place on a map and just go there? I, I don't think I've ever not been able to do that. I can separate both and I don't mind. I think that's probably the most important part. I don't mind the intervention or the the interactions or sometimes the disturbances that people will come at you with. Um, it's just, it's what I've chosen to do. And it means so much to me, this concept of customer service and the friendly skies and all the people that represent uh, our company that when it, it raises itself in any way, shape or form, you just have to embrace it. The fun part is, mm-hmm. you know, people want to take pictures and, and mm-hmm. want to talk and, Hey, I met you once. And, you know, it's lovely when customers <laughs> do that. Or, you know, you took care of somebody, all of that. When people want to complain and work through it, it's all, it's it's a little simpler to do for me now because I can really listen, put them in touch with the right person. Uh, and you know, not everyone is, as we've learned with customer experiences, there's always at least two truths, if not more than that. 
And mm. so getting past that, I, I, I don't miss the daily grind. I completely miss the people. And wonderfully, as I do travel around quite a bit, I, the, the wonderful recognition and involvement, with, every time I land and there's somebody waiting for me to say hi, I get thrown into a, you know, it's, hey, you got to come see this Oscar, got to come talk to us. I get a lot of complaints about, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, for, you know, Doug, you know, you know, the situation we've just been in with the, the contract negotiation. Yeah. I, know, yeah. I have a lot of your full on that over the course of the last few months. And again, oh, yeah. um, it's just, but it's important. It's, it's a good sounding board on both sides because I do talk to the company quite a bit and it's senior leadership on a fairly regular basis and we keep in touch. And it's, Again, for leaders out there, that, you know, need a department or, or anything, it's always important to know what people are really thinking. And the only way to do that is to actually listen to them or have people trust you enough that things get to you because other times, you know, things fester and get what. And that's what this, you know, you know, if you guys were in the company before I joined, that's what we had. We had just mm-hmm. a really broken down culture that nobody really, we had thought, I call it disengaged, disenfranchised and disillusion, the big three Ds. That's no way to run a company. No coffee. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Well, Oscar, <laughs> we know you. We know a lot about you now after reading your book. But all the listeners, we have listeners around the world that may not know your whole story. So could you just tell us, you, you were recently the CEO of United, CEO and chairman of the board. What brought you to United? Uh, so I was on, uh, and a lot of people don't know what board of directors are either, I've learned. And so a board of directors is a group of humans that oversee the CEO and his or her leadership team. Um, there's the concept of, of strategy, capital allocation, how you spend your money. And they also, boards are worry about succession planning and who goes next and, and making sure. And it's just, in essence, oversight. They, in effect, board of directors report to investors in a, in a weird way where they're here as a middle person. So if I've invested in your company and I just don't know what you're doing or how, whether you're doing it for your own benefit or not, a board of directors is supposed to be that person in the middle, kind of watches over that sort of thing. So it's a governing board. It, it should be a friendly and, and supportive work board. What brought me to United uh, it was being on the board of directors for Continental Airlines pre-merger. So mm-hmm. I, had, uh, I, you know, I had my own career. I was running a big uh, railroad company which has a lot of network and complexity. We have our version of pilots and tech ops, of course, uh, as a meaningful thing. So I, I knew a lot about the business. And frankly, the railroad made a lot more money. Uh, margins were significantly higher than the thin margins we have in the airline industry. So it was a good addition to the board at a fairly young age uh, because I did bring some industry background. I was, a, I was a CFO, so I was a financial quote expert, which is something they want on boards. So I got to learn a lot about the industry and business and spent Gosh, I mean, it was probably six or seven years before the merger on the Continental Board. They split up the board. I survived, so to speak, and made it to the Joint United Continental Board and was on that board as a director for five years or so before um, the current, the then current CEO of United uh, ran into some issues. Mm-hmm. And as they went to search, given my time on the board and my experience and how I interacted with the board, they asked if I would consider joining the company as its CEO. Um, and we, you know, you talk about the book and read it. There's a chapter or two mm-hmm. about that whole process, so I won't spoil it for potential <laughs> readers. Uh, but it was not any, as easy as you can, mostly because I had a job. I had a great job. I was uh, CFO, then COO, then president of my previous company, and I was slated to be announced as CEO just six weeks from when I moved. So. Making that decision was not an easy one. And again, we talk a lot about that. But that's how the decision came. Um, and there was a lot of parts of my, uh, my approach to how I look at roles that are in the book to talk about uh, with regards to just knowing who you are and what you do best and where those skills can best fit. And in my mind, what I did best was going to fit at United more than where I was because where I was, we had already turned it around. And it was doing great. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was going to, this is back to the wear out and rust out thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it didn't feel like I was going to, there'd be plenty to do as a CEO for sure. But I really felt that I had another turnaround in me and the one that I would lead directly. So that was uh, everything in a nutshell. 
Yeah, we, we've got a few questions about that <laughs> yeah. coming up, actually. So, yeah, we're going to delve deeper into your career, into your life, in your relatives, and what brought you to, to where you were. Oscar, we've got a lot to cover. But first, we must ask you our standard Avgeek question. No, wait, wait, Drew. Wait, Drew. <laughs> we, we do have a question for him. Oscar, can we classify you as an Avgeek? Or maybe we'll call it Avgeek adjacent <laughs> or tangential, Spec- On the I spectrum? Guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a broad it's a broad spectrum as you both know and in recognition and acceptance of of the upper end of the spectrum of geekdom i, I could never i could never ever dub myself at that level so i'm definitely Whoa, hold, to use your on. term adjacent just a minute let's let's delve into this a little bit more because one of your jobs in college was to stand under the landing path at lax and you measured the decibels of arriving aircraft for the engineering department of usc i think you said that was your freshman or sophomore year yeah. you had you had to go there for work but i do know for a fact that you've returned to that location voluntarily because i actually met you at cranky dork fest a couple of years ago before the pandemic <laughs> in fact and this is where my daughter said Daddy, don't don't bring this up. But I said, no, I have to. You bought In-N-Out burgers for the crowd. You offered my then three-year-old daughter a burger. She turned it down. My three-year-old turned down a free burger <laughs> from the CEO of one of the biggest airlines in the world. I, I never let her live that down and remind her almost daily, you turn down a free burger, especially from a CEO. Well, but let's let's get back. Let's we get definitely back to the you have to bring her back another time. And I promise <laughs> I, she has to buy me a burger this time. now. So. And it, I, I guess it has to be on, on a USC home game weekend. Uh, and then you'll you'll no. probably you'll probably be there. Well, that's usually but when that, you, that event is a quick, quick sidebar on that. When I went in there and I had the idea, I went to I said, order like a hundred, let's order a hundred burgers. And the manager came up and said, I can't do that because mm. I have this line of other people. And if I give you, I, I said, well, you understand, I, whoever's buying burgers, let me buy the next hundred, however mm. you want to do it. And yeah. she was very confused. And so we got like 30 initially and then 30 later. So it was a fun day. <laughs> well, okay. So you, you were at Dorkfest, you were watching the airplanes with all the rest of us. Do you, can, and you, you use the word Avgi several times in your book. Do you consider yourself an ad geek? No, and that was my point. It's a big spectrum, and surely out of respect for the true people at the upper end of that spectrum, I would not consider myself an ad geek of that magnitude. So I'm definitely, I think the term you used was adjacent. So I'd be ad, <laughs> ad geek adjustment. And, you know, it's a, such a combination because there's the mechanics and the types and all the working uh, parts of an aircraft. I still, as both of you, I'm sure do, marvel at the concept that something that massive mm-hmm. loaded with all of that weight so effortly gets off the ground and lands I and mean, that's just still a marvel that you can't even imagine uh, and the people that make that happen both from a mechanical from a pilot perspective but i would say my my biggest focus at least in my tenure there was really around the human aspect that gets those flights out in mm-hmm. a way that people can enjoy it and on time and, and, the, and the, I think most of it in the logistics of all that's involved to get everyone where they're supposed to be. It's a it's this grand kabuki dance of, of, of just, it, it's just it's amazing. So, yeah, in that way, it, when people get me talking about, you know, customer service things and I try to explain to them gently why you can't get off a plane in the middle of the tarmac because, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, well, it's like, I, I got to go places. And it's like, yeah, where are you going to go? Yeah. This is a quote. Can't I just call an Uber? It's like to come out <laughs> to run away too far. But I got to say, okay, so we're not letting you off the hook yet. Read, reading your book, I definitely got the feeling, Oscar, that when you were describing your thri- trips through the airport, that you had an attraction to our dynamic industry, which I heard a little bit about just now. So you said, I can't help but pay attention to the little things when I fly the friendly skies, the details that only those who've had the privilege to work in the industry tend to notice. You also said about airports, there's no stage more dramatic, no arena grander. This sounds like something that Doug and I would say. So you do <laughs> you do love the, the environment, at least, of... Uh, oh, of my gosh. Uh, there's just no better, uh, you know, you know, when you're a prose, as it applies to books requires a little extending my abilities and dramatic <laughs> flair 
but R- romanticism, I think we yeah. could probably call that. Poetic, there you go. Poetic license. Uh, but you know, it's 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 a meaning because as I walk through there, even today, I just they just you, you know all and and most customers have no idea, right? They're there, they're focused. Mm-hmm. Get me there on time. I don't like flying. I don't like all this stuff. But there's a lot of people that do a lot of things to get it done right. So yeah, romanticism is probably a good way. And and again, on on the spectrum, I I am probably um, more adjacent than true. A geekdom, but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, we'll move you in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, tell you what, maybe we can invite you back to Dorkfest sometime, and I'll have my daughter buy you a burger. There you go. Well, we're <laughs> we're we're going to skip our standard news recap for this episode, but there are two news stories that stand out regarding the future of aviation, and they seem important to discuss with you, Oscar. I think that the three of us in this virtual meeting would agree some changes are needed in the industry. Oscar, in turnaround time, you said, quote, it's not too far a stretch to say that air travel today would still be pretty familiar to those members of the original jet state generation from the 60s. I don't mean that in a good way. We are due for another transportation evolution. Oscar, it takes the same amount of time to travel from New York to London as it did in the 1960s. You're right. And you mentioned two aircraft that you think could be the future of air travel, which is the Archer Midnight, the EV Toll, and the Boom Overture. Both of these programs, Drew and I have been following very closely. We've talked about quite a bit, maybe to the chagrin of some of our listeners. Well, we're, we're going to talk about it again with you because you talked about these. The first one is Archer's Midnight eVTOL aircraft got another boost with the Air Force, now a customer, just like with the boom. Archer Aviation agreed to deliver as many as six Midnight aircraft to the U.S. Air Force in an agreement worth up to $142 million. They would be used for personnel transport, rescues, and logistics support. The Midnight is a four-seater battery-powered air taxi that can fly to 150 miles an hour for up to 100 miles. Archer has funding of $1.1 billion with Boeing, United, ARC Investment, Investing, and $250 million just this last week from ARC. The Midnight is expected to be in service by 2025, possibly speeding passengers from downtown Chicago to O'Hare Airport. What are your thoughts on, on this progression, especially now that the Air Force has joined? Drew and I always say... Once the government gets involved, <laughs> You're good. these things are probably going to happen. Probably going to go ahead and, and make it to the finish line. Oscar, yeah. this is that this is that Uber that that customer is asking for, right? He wanted an Uber. This one can go to the airport, <laughs> get him, take him to Oakland or wherever close in destination he's going to. Well, let me let me first reflect on your opening comments with regards to the chagrin of possibly some of your listeners with regards to conversations around this new age of of aviation that's coming. I mean, you know, as, as I said in the book, clearly, it, it's we've not really moved in a lot of places. I mean, aircraft are so much more fuel efficient. The new 87 is truly a dream liner in that regard and all that. But it's all essentially the same. And, and so there's, there has to be a new revolution. And so both of these things, and I'm involved in both uh, as an investor advisor. Uh, I'm a board member at Archer. So it's important to have that out there so that. You know, nobody takes anything I say uh, other than the fact that I'm inside of it. The flying car concept, you know, mm-hmm. the Uber, the, that being able to go. Uh, I lived in Chicago. You guys live in L.A. I mean, just the thought of being able to have not just the short time to get to a place, but the absolute certainty that you can get there in 10 minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like, there's mm-hmm. no one. Can, right now, traffic is miserable. And again, I, I grew up in L.A. So it's like, how far is it at the airport? That's not the question. How long is it going to take me on a Thursday morning yeah. versus a Sunday night versus that horseshoe that they're trying to fix there? And so, um, so it, it's it's a it's a much needed thing, which is why someone like United is invested. You know, they just put forth the, an order for a billion dollars worth of these things once we get them built. In addition to just that shuttle transfer between airports, which will be healthy for the industry, the airline industry, it's also a place that you can access so many different parts of the world. I mean, again, L.A. Mm-hmm. and you got Big Bear, you got you got Palm Springs, you got all these places that you can, in essence, get to. The range of this completely electric uh, aircraft is probably close to a hundred miles, so it's not meant mm-hmm. to go uh, to different places, too far different places. So, so it's, so that's it's not replacing the regional jet. Well, no, yeah, it's not. It's not. It's not going to replace any of that. I mean, you know, less than a hundred miles before you have to recharge at least in this, this early generation. So it's meant to get people to places that are relatively close by relatively quickly. So the possibility of having, again, I always use, and you guys are probably too young for this, but the old Jetsons uh, uh, mm-hmm. cartoons, 
Remember those flying mm-hmm. cars? As a little kid, talk about av geeked them. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was even early on. <laughs> I remember thinking as a little kid, it's like, wait, how the hell don't they crash into each other? Mm-hmm. I think there was a concept of those things. And, and so we are clearly there, and that's really exciting. And uh, Evie Tall, Archer, and there's a couple of others out there. So we're just waiting again back to geekdom. I mean, it's, you know, building this aircraft is a brand new aircraft. So you got you have to go through that part 135 operating certificate. Then you have to go to the 145, the, the maintenance, you know, station uh, certificate. Then you get, you know, you need to get this far, the, you know, the special flight aviation regulation to make to this flight. So we got to get this in the air. FAA is going to be really important to make sure it's absolutely safe. In that regard, boom. On the other hand, you know we've we've seen it before, right? The Concorde of old. The Concorde was you know first first generation. It was loud. It was hot. It was expensive. Uh, this new one, it, it's it's not a new aircraft, so it's not going to have to go through all mm-hmm. the machinations of FAA because the one thirty five operating certificate. There's it's no different than any other aircraft. It just has a different engine, and they all have they have issues with regards to flying over. You're not going to go transcon, at least for a while, mm-hmm. until regulations are lifted as far as the supersonic noise level. But, you know, being able to make it from New York to London in three hours, being able to go across the country in half the time anywhere else, that's another much needed issue. And again, 100% sustainable, which is, mm-hmm. you know, the, the coin of the realm nowadays. The On the, on the Archer side, you know, our, our, our plan is to have it there in early 2025. The long tent in the pole is FAA, so we will work closely with them. I think Boom has 2029 out there. Again, my opinion, they're going to go quicker because the, wow. all the technologies there, wow. the aircrafts there, they're, they're, we've already tested it. So hopefully that's it's out there in, in a commercial space as well. So very, very exciting new propositions because both of them will be affordable. Yeah. This isn't this isn't you know the fancy helicopter services in New York uh, to get out to the Hamptons. It's not the Concorde of old with regard to its cost. They're all meant to be generally. Uh, acceptable and available to all the people. Yes, it'll be business class level pricing for for Boom. Again, is the early thought, but nevertheless, it's much more accessible than for the ultra ultra wealthy. Doug, this is great news. So we have Oscar saying these two things could actually happen. Oscar, as far as the uh, the midnight, do you see airlines adding that on to the fare, or do you think that would be a separate offering that they would have, or would that be part of someone's first class ticket that they uh, get? A- I, I think the initial thought, and, and we've had this situation before. We built a we built a club, a United Club at, at Hudson Yards. We were this is the plans in New York, where it's like 400,000 people live and work in that area. Getting across to EWR, getting to any of the airports out of New York is difficult because of the traffic. Uh, we, had, mm-hmm. we had this plan that we would, you would check into the club in Manhattan and in, in effect have TSA security there, get in a Sprinter van, take you plane side, not curbside. So you've already gone to, and so, you know, you go, you, ra- you relax, you go through security, you get in a car service that takes you there. And so the way we structured it, uh, the idea there was that it was going to be an add-on. So if I'm booking a flight from EWR to San Francisco, as you book that flight, hey, would you like a ride? Would you like mm-hmm. to go to the club first? And, do, and then we, you would pay for the Sprinter van that way. I think the, the early thoughts with regards to the Archer vehicles would be they would be part of the, the United Fleet. They would operate them as a, a shuttle service, if you will. Much mm-hmm. like we have some bus services in Colorado and other places that we need, mm-hmm. so it'd be just yeah. you would just you would buy your normal ticket. This would be an addition, and it's all part of your itinerary. I did something similar to that in Hong Kong. You check in downtown, mm-hmm. drop your bags with Cafe Pacific. You do have to go through security when you get to the airport, but I can't tell you how efficient and how nice it was to drop my bags yeah. in downtown Kowloon and not worry about them until I got them again in Denver, twenty five hours later, yeah. like whatever it was. Yeah. So that's the, that's the next wave of, of customer orientation that you make these things just a lot easier. And again, uh, Archer and I suspect Boom at some point in time will be a different uh, uh, aspect of how that's worked because of it's a it's a direct flight. It's meant to be incorporated to that. Uh, at Archer, we will operate our own, in essence, airline that does a lot of this on its own, separate from anybody else, hmm. where we will take you from downtown Chicago to wherever you want to go, where from downtown LA to up to Big Bear or some other place that you want to be to. And so the, 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 the thought is to have that, you know, as a, it's a, you know, again, if you think of Uber, where does Uber go? 
wherever you want them to. Again, wherever within the limits of the, of the technology. All right. So that was a look into the future. Now let's get to our main event, Oscar. We're going to do a deep dive into your career and the turnaround of United Airlines as detailed in your book, Turnaround Time. Oscar, I've mentioned this on the podcast before about how I have a short attention span. I rarely read books and can't tell you the last one I read from cover to cover. I did read your book, Oscar. <laughs> I read it in two and a half days. It was so good. It's, it's a nice read. Not too long. The chapters are just the right length. I read it in preparation for this episode, but secondly, more importantly, because I truly enjoyed it and identified a lot with the challenges that you faced as an immigrant trying to make your American dream come true. I too couldn't put it down. I was drawn to the recovery story following your heart attack and your subsequent transplant. As my mom, who's also an avid listener of the show, is also a heart attack survivor. This book's topic is about an airline turnaround, but the story is intertwined throughout your fascinating life experiences. Can you tell us how you got to United, which actually you already covered that quite a bit. And then please tell us about your grandmother, Mama Josefina, and anyone else that made your success possible. We both loved how much Grandma Josefina was intertwined into the entire story. She really stood out, Oscar. I'm thinking about her now. Like, she never had, well, we're going to talk about her, but never had a bad day, always so positive. And I can't help but think there's some of her in you with all the struggles you've gone through. And I was complaining to my wife about something yesterday, and I remembered what you said. You never heard her complain yeah. about anything. So here I am at my own house thinking about <laughs> Mama Josefina. Josefina and how she never complained about anything. Uh, um, so, yeah, okay, wow. So that's a lot to, to work through. Um, but I, I think at the essence of it is the, my maternal grandmother, Mama Josefina. I talk a lot about my early childhood just because it's something, you know, once you're, when you're a quote-unquote public figure, it's not always easy to talk about this because someone is always listening. They'll publish, they'll make light of it. They'll make fun of it. They'll take it to their advantage or they'll, you know, it's just, you never know what people love to do those things. So uh, one of the things about, you know, sort of moving on from that area is you're able to tell the whole truth the way you've always wanted to tell it. And, and my tribute to her in the book is I'm glad to hear that it's evident because it was absolutely intention. She's just a, a, a woman who in, in growing up with her in those in those real formative years as a young as a young lad was clearly something with that put these latent or dormant values inside of me about being kind about not complaining about working hard about doing the right thing about engaging with people i just it's what i saw in her and we were not in great circumstances right we were traveling on dusty roads on buses and trains and we didn't have our own home specifically but we were always embraced by friends and family she always had this little song in her head that she sang. And no matter what we were, I never felt at ease, ill at ease. I, I always felt at ease. I never felt uh, worried. I was never scared other than the thought of not being with her at some point in time because I had to go sort of to my own family, which was a, a dramatic movement. But those values have always stayed in me and they've served me greatly uh, later in life when I've had to make some tough decisions. And, and Doug, you just told a story about your wife and you were complaining about some, and that comes to me. That's the concept of a dormant or latent value that I have in me. And so when I face some very serious situations, I was able to kind of look to her and her experience and not, you know, not to sound trite or overly stereotypical, you know, what would grandma do in this particular case? Mm. And, uh, and it always proved to be that, but that, yeah, she, she is one that I give lots of, uh, uh, lots of, of credit to who I became as a, as a human, in effect, and a leader and a, and a business leader, but mostly as a human. So Oscar, you know, speaking of that, speaking of resilience, you, you arrived at United and immediately hit the runway. You set off on a weeks long nationwide listening tour with employees from all work groups and all walks of life. But 37 days into your job, you had a massive, nearly fatal heart attack. By that point, you had already had an illustrious career, Oscar, and most people would have departed gracefully into retirement. Not you. In the book, you talked about how Mama Josefina never complained, stayed positive, and did what she had to do to care for her family, which is what you did. Tell us about your drive to bounce back from that. You know, my drive was part of it. The impetus, again, back to the United Family and why I wrote the book, I think, as kind of a very long love letter to the industry and to them. The outpouring of affection, again, I'd only been on the job for 37 days. I mean, it's not like they knew me forever, but the outpouring of affection, the cards, notes, flowers, food that came, kept coming to my apartment in Chicago would fill bags, the, the cards would, and my kids would come into the hotel, I mean, to the hospital, 
and read those every morning. And it became such a ritual that the doctors and the nurses and people would come in to hear the very emotional things that it was, given my situation, given these people that I did not know. And throughout that whole process, it just reinforced what I had felt initially, is that the people of United were not only professional and good at what they did, they had a pride and wanted to return to those times when they were indeed the friendly skies. And Incontinental had had its issues too. So both teams wanted to get together. We all want to, we all want to work together, succeed, and, and you know, and, 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 and create the kind of value that we have. And so that was a, that was a really strong point. People ask, well, why, did, why would you go back to work? You know, again, you've done a lot in your career. You know, just go back, relax. You've had this issue. It was never really a question in my family. I think they all supported. We never had a conversation about it, actually. It's like it was all kind of understood that I had to go back because a lot of the letters were like, get well quick, dot, 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 and get your ass back here. <laughs> in very wonderful terms, but that was the- that was the because you, you've got coffee, you've got coffee and contracts, <laughs> and I think it's okay. also because you're you're an ab geek. It was pulling you back just just again. A little bit. Oh my god, I'm so being found out in this thing. <laughs> but Oscar, you know, you mentioned you mentioned United Family a few times in this book, and you just mentioned it. Doug and I are very we have a passion for this industry. It's not just a job. You know, it's 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 our livelihood. It's the love of our life, aviation. Did you see that among United employees more than in other industries, an affiliation or, you know, a love for what they do? Or do you see that wherever you were? You know, I was part of a uh, railroad before. Uh, the railroaders had a, a wonderful comment with regards to the term legacy. Again, self-promoted by them. And I always kind of really appreciated it because they said that the leg this is railroaders. These are people that have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years, not dissimilar to some of our more senior folks in the airline industry. But they also, they always said that their role as a legacy was to leave a place better than they found it. So to answer your question, I saw that at, at, at this kind of, you know, sort of network oriented business with so much communication, so much machinery and piloting and this interaction that has to happen between so many people requires you for you to really work, want to work together, want to make these things work. So I saw it um, you know, uh, quite a bit in the, uh, in the railroad space. But again, that was a B2B, right? Just, we moved freight. We didn't have customers. It was particularly part of the, the DNA with United employees because hmm. they really wanted to take care of customers and their frustration in the listening tour that you guys referenced when I first started the job. It wasn't like, woe is me. I'm, hmm. not, I'm working too much. Or it's like, listen, we want to do all these things, mm-hmm. but you, you, know, you don't let us. And, and I think the, uh, the, the story I tell about the flight attendant, mm-hmm. you know, when I asked her, she says, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm always having to say, I'm sorry. Um, well, you know, I'm we, sorry. The, I'm sorry. Well, no, we got to mention that because that was, that was a very touching moment for the listeners. Oscar was on a plane. You were a new United employee. You're very friendly. You go up. Hey, I'm Oscar. Nice to meet you. And this flight attendant, Amy, starts talking to you. And eventually she breaks down and says, Oscar, I'm, let me get this right. Oscar, I'm just tired of always having to say I'm sorry. And that stuck with you. Yeah, that was the part of the, the, the pre, prelude to that was I was on this listening tour. Uh, when asked what I was going to do in front of Wall Street, I said, I'm not going to do anything until I get a sense from the people that actually touch the customers and touch the aircraft to get a real sense of what's going on because we are broken. And there's a lot of reasons why we're broken. I want to make sure I get all the information. So that, that was the impetus for the listening tour. What, what made the conversation with Amy, Amy Sue so important was I was on my way back to Chicago to kind of report out on all these great learnings. And I was inundated. Mm. I mean, if I had a thousand things that people thought I should fix, I now had, you know, a 10x that because everyone I spoke to had a different version of what needed to be fixed. There was clearly everything was, uh, was broken. And, and so where and I always say in turnarounds, the first thing you have to figure out is what you want to start with as a, as a base point. Because once you get that in, that base right, then everything from that. So you can't start necessarily with the most strategic network or, you know, kind of, it's important, but you have to fix what's really broken. And um, what that conversation with Amy Sue told me, that's when I first got a sense that, you know, I, I could encapsulate all the conversations that I've been having with this concept. It's like, we've lost our employees. They don't mm-hmm. trust us. 
They, they, they have no control over what we say and what we do or we provide, yet they have to provide it and they have to answer for it. And that's where the conversation, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. I mean, you think about it. I mean, Doug, you fly all the time. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you're late. It's like, well, is that your fault as a human? No, you, have, you don't have anything to schedule and you don't have to do with anyone maintenance. Tech ops, that the coffee sucks. It's like you know, somebody chose it somewhere else. No, I'm sorry, you you know you can't bring your peacock on board. That's a different story. That's a different story. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's a great discussion. Thanks for sharing your amazing personal story as well as your Herculean accomplishment of ensuring a great airline continues to climb. Being app geeks, here we are using that term again, and airline professionals. We want to ask you a few questions regarding your thoughts on leadership and the airline industry. Drew, let's alternate. I'll take the first one. Oscar, what specific quotes or mantras from other leaders have inspired you throughout your career? Were there any particularly powerful during any of the dark days of the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, there's just so many. And I, I can't even attribute some of this thing. I think a long time ago, I learned the phrase, seek first to understand before trying to be understood. I don't know where that came from. Somebody said maybe. That sounds like Sun Tzu or, yeah, or yeah. something. <laughs> but, but it was, for me, given my heritage, which bias exists, given my in, in background, and given that I've always gone into new industries and new areas. I mean, you know, I, I started in soft drinks, which was new, but then I went into telecom and then went into, and into, into railroading and then eventually the industry. I, I've learned that if you walk in, and I was always relatively young when I took all these roles. So if you come in all what I call asses and elbows, right? It's like, hey, look at me. I'm so important. I'm so smart. And I must be smarter than you. I've always made the point of wanting to understand from people. And so that seek first to understand uh, and to be understood is important. The second one would be, what what's the benefit of that? Mm. And I call it discretionary effort. And I'm sure somebody else came up with it at some point in time. Then discretionary effort is, well, it's like, what does it mean? It's like, well, it's like, well, here's what it means. If you have a child, and Doug, we're talking about your then three-year-old, now probably nine or 10, you would do anything for that child. Mm -hmm. Only a parent knows this. You would do anything. That is maximum discretionary effort. Now, I can't ask, we can't ask people at work to give that kind of effort every day. It's too difficult and too hard. But there's also the other side, which is absolute apathy which to a degree we had at United upon my arrival. So somewhere in the middle was that. So this concept of understanding people before wanting to be understood, that's the listening part. Listen, learn, and then lead is my own phrase, but that was an important part. So that's always driven me. How do you, how do you build bridges? How do you understand different people? Because uh, my ability to solve union contracts, for instance, was really based. It started at the railroad. It's yeah. like I comprehend my heritage, my background. My dad was a union meat cutter. My uncle was head of the IBEW union. So I grew up with that side of the union environment. So I understood both my uncle and my dad to be pretty good human beings. They didn't want anything necessarily bad or take advantage of anything. They wanted a little protection, a little you know, sharing in the, in, the, in the profits of the business. You know, whether you agree with that or not, there was a concept of, of understanding that. And I tell a story of the, the, um, the woman who ran the uh, airline, the uh, flight attendant union, and how we came to be so close by, again, asking her how she got started and understanding where her drive and passion was. So those are the, the values that have always been inherent. And so those are the, you know, I, there's, a, I'm sure, more than a few quotes in there, mm -hmm. but I've also made up quite a bit of my own. But it's living by that. And that's my fundamental sort of leadership style. You know, I go back to what you wrote. You said, we elevated safety and rebuilt a culture that respected our workers or Mama Josefina, again, Mama Josefina again would say, the ones who do the work and deliver it. That's great. Well, so, a quick sidebar. I think I talked yeah. about it there as well. When I, my grandmother was a very simple woman, she did not speak English. She worked as a maid, and and so uh, and so when she would ask me what I would do, I was a CFO at the time at Coca Cola, uh, one of the regions. <laughs> I would explain. How do you explain to someone? of old school, what a CFO does. Mm -hmm. and, and she would get that look in her eyes like, oh, my hijo, <laughs> which means uh, my, my, my son. <laughs> so you, not, you must not be very bright because <laughs> in, in her world, work was work, right? You right. made the product, you delivered the product, you, you, you cleaned the rooms and everything. And the people that were not doing that you know, it's like, oh, my son must not be so smart that they have to put it behind a desk. That was the, that was the context of the, as Mama Hosefina would say. 
When United first approached you about the CEO position, you were in line to become CEO of CSX, but you said that you had already done everything you needed to do there. You wanted to revive a struggling company like you did at CSX. What draws you to transformational change? Do you have a need to fix things? Is that part of your makeup? It just seems oh my like... God. Are we going to go into psychotherapy? (laughs) Yes, I have this gravy. No, um, again, uh, given that we have limited time, uh, again, I hate hate referencing the book all the time, but I I talk about a concept called knowledge of contribution. And I think inherent in the description of that is why I made that sort of decision. Knowing what you do best and having a place that wants you, that needs that done, right? We were so divided at United that, you know, we had lost our people, we had lost our way and operational, financially, and culturally. And that's kind of what I felt I did pretty well. And I felt I had another one of those in me is, is really the fundamental sort of backdrop for that conversation knowledge. But again, you can read more about it in the book. Oscar, you've been in the aviation industry for nearly two decades, whether on the board or in a CEO position. What advice do you have for people just beginning in the industry? We have a lot of young listeners, people who join the industry after listening to us. So any listener out there who's just starting or just thinking about it, what advice do you have for them? From a career perspective, so I'll do it two ways, human and and career. On the career aspect of that, I think we've grown into a couple of generations of everybody wants to be somebody very quickly. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, I read five books. I know I know how to do it. And I know how to opine on how you're not doing something well. And why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? I get a lot of questions. An example of that. Why don't we just get rid of unions? And then you wouldn't have this contract issue. And in, you can both of you can imagine what that would mean and how that would work. And how, it's just it's not some it's not as it's not that it's not that easy. It's just not the right thing to do. It's you know, these are folks that have made you and, and work every day for you, how you learn to respect them. Those are experiences that you learn by working hard, working at roles, understanding who the people are that work around you and for you, and and appreciating the value that they bring. Because when you do that, you would not come to the conclusion, I should just get rid of people. Because a math thing is, sure, you know, it's like we could just get rid of all of that. We wouldn't have all of these things. But then you wouldn't have people either, necessarily. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I think think, uh, kind of a... A truly for younger generations, listen to and, and and inquire from the people above you. They may look old. They may have old school views in your mind. They may not be as contemporary with all the tools and technology and all of those things they have. But you know what they have is they have just pure hard earned experience. And it's one of those mm-hmm. things that until you get that experience, you don't ever value it. I was a young whippling at some point in time who had all those views. What happened along my way to an earlier question of the various people that affect you, I had various people along the way stop me and share some viewpoints with me because they cared. Meaning, you know, listen, like, okay, young guy, can you just slow your roll a little bit? Or can you you contemplate this? Again, experience teaches you that. So for people uh, younger, it's like, listen to those, listen to them as much as you can. And understand that they've been through a lot. Your efforts, your ideas, your new tools can be of exponential value to you and your career if you blend it with the experience of others that have been there. Hmm. Plain and simple. On the human side, and we've talked a little bit about my views on life. We are taught so much that books tell us to do things like like lean in and and you know power suits and there's just so many different values out there. Understand that the people that that talk about those do mean them, but don't mean them as the only thing. Um, there's such a broad array of things. So don't just read one book, you know, watch and look around you back to the listening and learning from people of experience. And, and, and you know, to some degree, appreciate the fact that your career is a long one. And yes, mm-hmm. you see and read of people that become billionaires at 26. And I want to be that person. And wonderful, great for those people. Those are very few and far between. The rest of us are normal humans that are going to have to work for a living. But I'll tell you, again, from an experience perspective, the things that have I, I've achieved over the course of my life, based on my hard work and, and, and all the things that I've done, the intrinsic value you have to yourself about your accomplishments in that time period is comforting. As I retire into this next chapter and I'm able to do the many things that I'm doing, I do them with an absolute full heart that I have everything I've gained, I've earned. And I've earned through the, uh, and 
and, and, and getting rich quick and all those schemes are wonderful. The problem is what do you do for, for an encore? If you have a billion dollars and you're 28 years old, you got 60, 70 years of life that you're not going to just, it's, again, it's a personal philosophy. Not everyone's going to become, you know, the, the basketball star, the football star, and good for them. Um, most of us have to work for a living. So for the most people, the people that are listening, you're going to have to work. It's not a bad thing. Enjoy what you do. Thrive in it. It never feels like work. Do the things that you're doing that, you know, you enjoy this industry. You do this podcast. You get a lot of joy out of it. It's like, does it pay a lot of money? No, that's, that's not the point. The point is that the human intrinsic value is a dynamic that when you get older, you'll reflect on. And this concept of living a happy life is a really important one. So again, that's the more human side. There's a, a career aspect of that. But there's just a lot of, 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 of wisdom that, that we learn over time that just don't be in such a hurry and don't be afraid to work hard. Well, I can answer your question. What do you do as an encore as a billionaire? Just start an airline. You'll become a millionaire. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Sorry, Sorry, you know, to, there's thousands of comedians out of work and I got this guy, a pilot. <laughs> Oscar, in the in the book, you talked about Mama Josefina, but you also talked about a lot of leaders that just, as you're saying, you know, you you had an open mind and you learned from them. You brought in your own style, but you, you took a lot from them. And you said that a lot of people gave you the chance. I think that's an important part of the book because you also talk about diversity and bringing in more people of color and women into aviation. Can you talk a little bit about that, about giving people a chance? Things become politicized. So words like DEI and ESG that are prevalent throughout have become so political to a point where we don't do actual anything meaningful about it because unless we get canceled for being one way or the other, the premises of sustainability, of, of diversity and inclusion, all of those are really meaningful, big topics that we need to address, no matter how you feel. I mean, it's uh, I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, and the heat index yesterday was 116. It hasn't been that way for a long period of time. I was just down in the Keys. The water's almost 100 degrees. I don't know what drives that, other than that seems awkward. So something's going on. So should you do something about it? Yes, and United has been a very big proponent of doing that. But the giving people a chance on inclusion and diversity, often the, the answer to these, oh, I'm trying, but I don't have enough people or I don't have the pipeline. Well, I use myself as an example. When I became a board member at Continental, I was 41, 42 years, whatever. I didn't have any experience on the board. It was my first time as a public company CFO. So I'd never had public company experience, but the board had quite a, a broad array of very talented, more senior executives that were part of the board. And so they needed someone with the financial expertise, which I brought. The fact that I happened to be Hispanic was at the time not a big thing, but you know, an added plus. But mostly they saw someone in, in me that's like, hey, this is a smart young guy that be great to put him on the board now, let him learn. So in a couple of years, he'll be a really highly producing board member. That was giving me a chance. And you know, and my story comes up and you know I got a chance to go all the way up to running the company. That's not necessarily what everybody's trade is. But I urge boards today, rather than think about, oh, gee, I can't find anyone, go find people that are, you know, a little bit, not younger, but necessarily a little, not quite, they're not former, you, you know, finding former CEOs who happen to be diverse is a very, it's, a, it's still a small aptitude. You can find people that are going to be the CEO or other stuff that you can put on your board. If you have a capable group of folks, it's not even taking a chance. You're just giving someone a good opportunity to learn. So don't restrict yourself to things in front of you. If you really want to make an effort, you can make an effort. So don't tell me this mm -hmm. and that. It's like, it's like, listen, if you really wanted someone, you'd go find them or her. Go find them. That, that's the giving people a chance. Uh, work is this as well. I mean, I've been given so many chances and career moves that I've made, not because I was of my heritage, but it's like, mm -hmm. hey, he shows a lot of promise. He seems smart enough to learn. Let's let him, let him have a chance. And that's we need to just sort of do more of that and put the politics aside for a while. Oscar, back to aviation. What would you say is the biggest shift or change in the aviation industry in your lifetime? And then tell us what do you think is the biggest change that's coming to the industry in the future? Yeah, and we talked a little bit about the change in the future, right? The, the new technology and the new more, finally some, some revolutionary sort of change. I think what I've seen is a, a infinitely more genuine move towards taking care of the customer. 
Um, mm. We've given it lip service, kind of like DEI and other things. It's like, it, it, and now, and I think a lot, unfortunately, that started by our, the incident that we had with Flight 3411, which we didn't talk about, but nevertheless, I think that prompted a move to, you know what, we need to, we need to spend more attention to taking care of customers. While, you know, the financial parts of the business have gotten a little stronger, it's even more important. So I I hope that continues because the flying public deserves as much help as they can. And so I'd love to have seen that. The future we've talked about, I think things like Archer, things like Boom Mm -hmm. uh, is really revolutionary. It's opening up the world. I think airline networks are beginning to appreciate uh, post-COVID how humans Mm -hmm. want to be in a lot of different places. You've mm-hmm. seen United start a ton of flights to places mm-hmm. that we've never flown before. Yep. And those flights are are very successful very quickly. It used to take a year or so to get those things started up and going. Now there's such a demand. So that, that's been a, the, the, the consumer demand and desire has changed and then being able to take advantage of it. So more people, more places, more sustainable, more modes of transportation that make it easier. I think it's an exciting future. Final question before we get on to just a couple of shotgun Avgeek questions at the end. This one's from a listener. Let's play it. My first name is Dale in Colorado Springs. So my question, as a loyal listener who will be featured in the film Not Without My Status, have a question for your esteemed guest on your next podcast. Did the board of the company, uh, of which he was the CEO, already have their eyes on the current CEO even before he was available. Thank you. Very much enjoy your show. The, the answer is quite simple. Knowing what I needed to make the company better, I needed a strong number two that had a lot of depth and experience in the industry that I did not have. I think that's one of the things of leadership is absolutely accepting the fact that you know I'm never going to catch up with someone that has 20, 25 years experience in, in actually running an airline. So went out and found Scott while he was someone else and named him president, knowing full well that that starts the clock ticking for the person in charge. And again, that's one of the big leadership aspects that people are just don't ever talk about. It's not about you. It's about the people you lead and what the company needs. And so bringing him on immediately began the clock ticking for me. So if the question is, did the board have its eye on him? Well, yeah, I was on the board, but yes, we... We started building the succession aspect of that. Um, Scott had a lot of things that he, you know, that he had learned over the years, and a lot of things he had to somewhat unlearn, if the case may be. So we put him through. <laughs> well, we all do. Um, it's funny yeah. how senior leaders yeah. don't often get a lot of feedback, and mm. so what we put him through is a nice feedback process led by me, by an outside coach, and then mm. he spent three, four years working through that. Uh, and learning stuff and appreciating the things that I did the way I do them and me appreciate them. And he has a great quote at the time because I make you a better CEO, Oscar, and you make me a better president Hmm. uh, with the intent that he would become CEO. So yeah, succession planning, by the way, should always work this way. When somebody inside the camp that knows everything and everyone in culture is the one that takes over, brings his or her own views to it, but the fundamental structures that we had had, and, and you guys know this, we had had I think eight different CEOs before me in a span of 10 or so years, that constant back and forth is awful for a culture and a company. So mm-hmm. good succession planning is that you have somebody in place and you put them in and there's really not a miss of step or having to learn a whole new mode of working. Let's get to something lighter. Well, it may not be for you because you're not an av geek, so you may have to put some thought into this. <laughs> but still, <laughs> we're hoping it'll be fun. So before we let you go, we're hoping you'll entertain a few av geek questions for us and for our listeners. It's not often we get to ask an airline CEO these questions, so this will be fun. Let's alternate, Doug. Speaking of which, I don't know if the listeners can hear that there's a train going behind me in the background. I wonder if it's CSX yeah. on, the, on the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> your favorite aircraft oh it, it's it's got to be the 87 really okay all, all the promotional material is actually true that's i've taken a lot of long flights everything about it makes it much more comfortable the air circulation all of these all the geeky stuff we talk about is mm-hmm. actually true. <laughs> it's actually true it, it's a it's a pleasure to fly that aircraft to fly in that aircraft leg room middle seat in the front of the aircraft or a window in the back with the middle seat open 
<laughs> I think space is king, right? Uh, I think space is someone that's flown everywhere on those aircrafts. I, I wish, you know, that people don't recognize how incredibly valuable every square inch of an aircraft is mm-hmm. for so many different reasons. And we don't put people in middle seats because we want to. It's just mm-hmm. the way to maximize the aircraft and compete. And so it's an unfortunate part of it. But yeah, anytime you can get a little space and room, I think is good. Yes. And I'm, I am an aisle, by the way, I'm an aisle guy. Because I get up oh. and talk to customers and do <laughs> oh, I don't okay. want to be crawling yeah, over people. Like, no, <laughs> yep, that makes sense. All right, in turnaround time, you said that the airport terminals are, quote, one of our last town squares. What's your favorite AvGeek airport? Not for anything practical like smooth connections <laughs> or convenience, just if you had to pick a favorite airport as, as an AvGeek or even a tangential AvGeek, as you said you are, what airport would it be? You know, I have to admit that the, uh, some of the newer airports uh, and all the new technology, the new bag handling systems, the new security things. Uh, Europe has a couple. Amsterdam comes to mind. Uh, Singapore. I won't even go into the Gulf states and what they've built out there. From my AvGeek perspective, that seeing the future of airports in that way is great. And, and if I stay home, I never, ever, ever have said that anything's my favorite, given that we have seven hubs and they're all my favorites. <laughs> so, <laughs> some, some can be more difficult than others at times. <laughs> but yeah, being able to see in the modernization that's available out there, if the airport authorities of all these uh, cities would take the time to raise the money to upgrade them the way they should, it makes a big difference. And how many people come to your city, honestly, and how they view your city? Because, you know, the airport and, and, it's, and the brand and the image it leaves on you is also mm-hmm. the image and the brand of the city to a large degree. Okay, speaking of hubs, you're at uh, Newark or EWR, which means you're a Californian, because I don't think anyone on the East Coast says EWR. So you're at EWR, Oscar. Do you take the next flight, which is a 737 to LAX, or do you wait an hour for a 787? (laughs) Uh, It would depend on where I'm headed and why. Uh, But (laughs) if I had an option to take the 87 uh, Transcon, I would do that. It's a long flight. (laughs) Yeah. Good, Scoring good, a lot good. of AvGeek points You can come here. back on. You, you answered correctly. <laughs> You're welcome back on. Should United go back to featuring Rhapsody in Blue as the theme song and Fly the Friendly Skies as the motto? I do. Um, we've had that debate, uh, at least in my tenure. Uh, there's nothing more iconic than, than that song. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can literally play it anywhere. And uh, unfortunately, the, uh, the original author of the song doesn't get the credit that they yeah. should. Um, but I, I think that is iconic. It, it's remained contemporary. And, and the Fly the Friendly Skies is still one of the most recognized sort of t- taglines out there. And so I, I, I do. I'm, and it's not an old school thing. I just think it's a really valuable thing that we've done work on. Yeah. So as a kid, when I hear that song, I don't think Gershwin. I think United Airlines. I mean, it's so iconic. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Oscar, economics aside, what currently unserved city pair would you love to see an airline fly? Ooh. You know, the, the, one of the great things our network people did is connecting small East Coast cities to small West Coast cities. Historically, like I'm in Jacksonville, Florida today, flying to L.A. where I grew up required me to go to Houston or to, or to Chicago and then from Chicago uh, or Houston to LA, then from LA, you know, I'll take another flight up and down the coast to get the, if I wanted to go to Santa Barbara, for instance. And so what we've been able to do is use Denver direct. So it's a long flight directly from Jacksonville to Denver. And then from Denver, we have all of those uh, city pairs that you can do. So they've done, the network people have done a great job. So I can get to Santa Barbara by one o'clock, mid, midday or one o'clock if I leave on a on an 8 a.m. flight out of Jacksonville. So that's a huge move. And so we've done a lot of that. I think um, the other thing, I guess, you know, it's like, like living here in Jacksonville. If there was a way to connect, to do better with international connections, because mm. right now, you know, if I'm in Europe, I have to fly into Dulles or EWR, Newark. <laughs> Um, I, I think my, my language goes mm. to say EWR better than, but I've learned to speak in acronyms for our airport. That's my world, right? Everything is, you know, uh, everything. I was just that F three letter codes. Um, that that connecting time and flights usually can make it very difficult. And so something in that realm would be my network plan is how do, how do you get people mm. home to smaller cities from international mm. flights? So it's not such a drag to get there or to connect. 
Okay, for you then, if you had to choose a route out of Jacksonville, mm-hmm. let's say, because you live in Jacksonville, economics aside, airline thinking aside, you personally, if you could launch a flight from Jacksonville to anywhere in the world, where would you choose? I, it would be international. Mm-hmm. And again, I can't help but be practical because, you know, of our, the, the, the flights, uh, aircraft can't fly that far. So anything sort of east of the East Coast of the United States, so Europe, uh, Africa, uh, direct flights from here uh, to get to any one of those places, selfishly speaking, but it would make, a, I think, a big difference. I don't think you can ever go wrong with any nonstop to Europe, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> any any city to right, in Europe, one. and you, you've got, yeah, you, you've got the globe that you can go to from there. Well, Oscar, thank you for taking the time to be on our show, and, and please come back whenever you want. I know that you're super busy, quote unquote, uh, in retirement, as we talked about. But thank you so much for taking some time out of your your busy day to join us. Thank you, gentlemen. It was a pleasure. Take care. Hope to see you out there. And I'm waiting for that burger. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take you up on that. Oscar, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for believing in our industry, Oscar, and doing your part to make us better. Looking forward to when our paths will cross again and, and come back anytime you want. Talk about electric planes. Talk about the boom. We'd love to have you back. Terrific. Thank you, gentlemen. Be sure to pick up a copy of Oscar's book, Turnaround Time, wherever books are sold. And trust me, if it kept Drew's attention, everyone will highly enjoy it. (laughs) To our listeners, this podcast is your show. So go on our website, nextstripnetwork.com, and let us know what's on your mind so we can talk about it or give us feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at Podcast. Please tell your friends about us so we can reach more people who love aviation and travel. You can also call our Google voice number to ask a question or just rant about something. The number is 872-529-5620 when calling from the U.S. Make sure to use the country code of 001 or plus one when calling from abroad. Thanks to all of our listeners for your support and for joining the conversation. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, stay aviation tough. This has been the Next Trip Podcast. Visit nexttripnetwork.com for information about previous episodes, trip reviews, aviation photos, and other aviation-related content. This is your show, so search for The Next Trip on Twitter and let Doug and Drew know what you want to talk about. Not on Twitter? You can also email them at nexttrip.podcast at gmail.com. Please consider leaving a review wherever you download your podcasts. It will help other listeners like you discover this show. <laughs> That's hey, come here, Poppy. Come here. This is actually my daughter, the one hi, who Poppy. offered the burger to. <laughs> he says hi. I can't wait. I can't wait to share a burger with you. <laughs> <laughs>